Um, so thank you for, uh, it was really cool hearing all that stuff, um, fathers, what, what that means to us. Um, I'm just, uh, none of my technology is working. It's just one of those Sundays. Um, is the keynote on? I really thought this would work. Should I just do the clicker? Um, yeah, so uh, as you saw in the video, and as I'm sure most of you guys know, we're missionaries in Sherbrooke, Quebec. And, um, you know, we had an interesting journey of going, what's that? If it doesn't work, just tell me how Okay. Back up a bit here. Cool. Um, all right, I feel a little bit better now that I got my, my PowerPoint. Um, so after I, I kind of present that video, people often ask, so what, are, what exactly are you doing in Sherbrooke? Are you teaching? I say yes. Are you doing Bible studies? I say yes. Are you campus pastor? I say yes. Are you in local church? Yes. Uh, we're kind of doing a lot of different things out there. Uh, we, as you know, we went to Africa. Uh, that didn't work out due to health reasons. We came back and we just asked God, okay, well, I speak French. I can teach. We love Quebec. Uh, how is this going to work? And the way it's been working... Um, is just, I'm out there as a teacher, uh, and so we do Bible studies on campus, and uh, the first semester that I taught, I tried to kind of be the campus pastor guy, and I'm not the campus pastor guy, um, like as far as exciting events and, and big, big ministry, but what I do is a small, really focused, really deep Bible study that attracts a few people that really want to go deep. Uh, so we have that on campus, and I'm part of the larger team as well, and help them do their things. And then we'll go to a local church, which is a small church plant that was planted about five years ago, and so we're helping that grow. Uh, we're part of the community, doing scouts. We've got invitations to other things uh, in the community this year. We'll see how that goes. Uh, and all this stuff I put online on josiahmeyer.com. I've got a blog and podcast and, and YouTube and Twitter. Well, I don't really do the Twitter thing, but it's there. Um, and uh, so this is kind of weird. Like, I got this camera here. All the kids think this is really, really cool. Um, it's kind of weird, uh, but just to give you an example of how this stuff has an impact, last, uh, yeah, last Sunday, wow, that was only a Sunday, one week ago, um, I preached a sermon on um, Bible difficulties in the Old Testament, so explaining how we can worship a God that gets angry and, you know, the weird laws in the Old Testament, and uh, I live-streamed it at the same time, and uh, so there were 30 people in the congregation. By the time I was done the sermon, it had been viewed 95 times. And I looked in on it a week later, it had been viewed 250 times. And so you can see how, and I know a lot of these people follow my Facebook page and they follow my, my podcast and stuff. And some of them have said, I don't go to church anymore. Some of them have never gone to church. Uh, because, you know, there's that barrier to entry. It's, it's weird to go to church. There's all sorts of reasons not to. Um, and yet, when you record a sermon, put it online, boom, it's, it's available for people that wouldn't come otherwise. Um, so, uh, support-wise, we're at 84% now. Uh, at the beginning of the month, we were at 81. Uh, and so, thanks for praying for us, and thank you for supporting us. Um, big part of our support comes from this building here, and just thank you all so much for that. Uh, just keep us in prayer as we look for the rest of that. Um, I wanted to share just a little bit from, a, from the heart to say we're doing much, much better. 
Um, we have been sharing a little bit on our blog about two years ago, 2016, uh, 2015 and 16, was a really rough time for us. Uh, we came back from Africa, we spent not enough time here, and we went off to Quebec. Um, and we hit burnout and, and it was really rough. Um, this past year we made a lot of really important changes. We started going to a small English church plant. Uh, we found community, we slowed down, we set realistic goals, and last year was actually probably the best year we've had in mission so far. Um, and so praise God for that and thank you all for your prayers. And I did want to encourage you that um, we are doing a lot better. Uh, praise the Lord. So that being said, um, something I'm doing that I don't often do is recycling sermons. I usually do all original sermons, but um, it's been, uh, you know, obviously a lot of visiting, a lot of, of uh, tightly packed schedules. And so, um, and Jessica's been, always been encouraging me to, to recycle sermons, and now finally I'm forced to. Um, in uh, Sulakout, uh, Nate Hostetler said, um, you know, instead of just sharing about what you're doing, why don't you share what you're doing? Because I'm often posting on Facebook uh, apologetic stuff and reasons to believe in God and things like this. And so he said, why don't you just hit us with about six of the, the biggest questions you get asked on campus and, and it's kind of a brief overview of your answers to these questions. And so I put together a sermon of about six questions that I often get asked. And I thought that went pretty well. And so uh, I thought I'd redo it now. And I added a few more that I thought of in the meantime. Um, before the service, before I got to speak, I thought it was going to drop down and down and down. I was getting less and less. And then uh, Walter came over and said that I could have more time. So thank you again for that. So without further ado, I'll jump into um, kind of the, the nine big questions that I get asked. Now, obviously, I just have to say this. I'm going to give some really quick answers, and obviously, you can dig deeper into all these answers, but it's just a really brief survey. And most of these, if you go onto my blog, um, there's a whole class that I taught uh, on each of these because last year I taught a class in English at a local Bible school on apologetics. Um, so uh, back up, back up. Um, first big question, or, or the ninth, I guess, uh, does the Big Bang disprove God? So who here has heard of the Big Bang? You guys know about the Big Bang. Um, the, uh, the theory that everything came into being a certain number of, of years ago, and just, boom, everything started to exist. Uh, and typically Christians are very resistant to this as an idea, as something that is taught to our children. But actually, this can be a very powerful tool to begin speaking about God. And the argument goes like this. It's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Does everybody agree with this premise? Whatever begins to exist has a cause. This phone did not always exist. It began to exist. There is a cause for this phone. You know, this pamphlet, which I forgot to talk about. Get a pamphlet on your way out. Um, began to exist. It has a cause. If you could think of something that, that didn't begin to exist that was eternal, we could say, well, it didn't have a cause. But everything that began to exist had a cause. The universe began to exist, according to Big Bang, according to contemporary cosmology. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, this doesn't seem like a big deal until you start studying the history of science and philosophy, and you realize that for eons back, as far back in history as we can see, everybody has believed the universe, the, the world, was eternal. And it was really the Jewish religion that came along with this idea that the universe has a beginning, and that was something that was a tension point between philo the philosophy and, and Judaism. 
Um, and for, for centuries, for millennia, this has been something where the scientific community has been mocking Christianity and Judaism. And finally, the Big Bang has proven that, no, the universe had a beginning. It's not eternal. And if it had a beginning, then it must have a cause. And that's the big question right now in cosmology. What was the cause? Um, the Big Bang is not the belief only that matter and energy came into existence. It's also the space that matter and energy is in. And it's also the time that it's in, believe it or not. So time, energy, space, and matter came into being a certain amount of years ago. This is the theory of Big Bang. So what could be the cause of the Big Bang? It doesn't take you long to figure out it must be something spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and immensely powerful. And so pretty quickly we can start seeing that contemporary cosmology is not against Christianity. It starts pushing us towards asking what is actually the cause for time, space, matter, and energy. Uh, secondly, does ev evolution disprove God? This is where people always go. This is where the battle lines have been drawn. Uh, in my class on apologetics, I said this is like World War I. You know, there's, there's the trenches, and there's the creationists, and there's the evolutionists, and bang, 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 and nobody moves. Um, but what uh, intelligent design people are talking about now is before you get to evolution, there's all these steps that need to happen. And it's kind of like this old joke, I don't know if you've heard it, I'm sorry to repeat a good joke, uh, but um, a bunch of scientists got together and they said, God, we don't need you anymore, we can create life. And God said, all right, we'll have a competition, it's a comic, so you know, they're back and forth. And uh, so a certain day the scientists all get together and they say, all right, they're, they're huddled around some sand there and they're like, we're going to create life. And God hollows down from heaven and says, hey, get your own dirt. <laughs> Pretty good one, hey? Now, actually, scientifically speaking, that comic has a lot of sense because by the time you get to the place where life could begin to exist, where evolution could start to happen, you have all these hurdles to get over. Now, the first one is the Big Bang. How did anything get here in the first place? Um, and why didn't the Big Bang happen eternity ago? Which is another big question. The initial conditions of the universe um, Stephen Hawking, who apparently is the smartest man alive, says the laws of science as we know them at the present contain many fundamental numbers like the size of the electrical charge of an electron, the ratio of the masses of the proton-electron, I have no idea what he's talking about, uh, but certain things that are, are how they are. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been finally adjusted to make possible the development of life. So the initial conditions of the Big Bang had to be how they were, very, very precisely. Um, and usually they talk about numbers like 10 to the 23 or 10 to, you know, like numbers so big you can't even imagine how precise it had to be uh, for life to begin and how precisely on a, on a molecular uh, atomic level things need to be fine-tuned. So we have the Big Bang initial conditions. Everything needed to be finely tuned for stars to exist, for planets to exist. Then we have the Goldilocks conditions of the world. And you can Google this, uh, just look at Goldilocks conditions of the world. They used to talk about, or Goldilocks conditions of a life-permitting planet. They used to think there were about four or five, you know, you need to have water, it needs to be a certain distance from the sun, you need to have atmosphere, and, you know, the, the planet about the right size, and boom, you can have evolution, you can have life. Well, now they're up to about 60 uh, different things that need to be in place in order for a planet to sustain life, which is why, although they've, they've discovered 
lots and lots of planets. They haven't found any yet where they can, well, maybe they, they, they keep finding one that like, has water, but it doesn't have these other things. Uh, and it's just so remarkable that uh, even things like uh, the iron at the center of our planet, apparently there's iron there, which was what gives us an electrical charge, a North Pole, South Pole. And when you go out at night and you see the uh, northern lights, that's actually all the ion particles from the sun, the solar wind, that without an iron core to our planet, would strip the atmosphere off our planet and make us like Mars with just no atmosphere, completely barren. Uh, so the iron inside the planet is protecting us. And the moon is very, very large, very uncharacteristically large for our planet. All sorts of theories about why we have such a ridiculously huge moon. But it slows down the planet, otherwise our days would take about uh, two or three hours. We'd be spinning that fast due to our mass and other things like that. Um, and our moon is, is you know, swishing our oceans back and forth and creating life, creating uh, oxygenation. Um, one of the most remarkable things about life is Jupiter, uh, about our solar system. The planets in our solar system are not how you would expect them to be. They don't go from smallest to biggest or biggest to smallest. They're all kind of funny sized. Um, and, and there's different theories about why they're odd sizes and why Jupiter is so big. And it's very convenient that Jupiter is big because Jupiter has, is going around fairly quickly and it has a very large gravitational pull. And so as asteroids are coming in on their elliptical orbit around the Sun, they're getting sucked into Jupiter's uh, magnet, or, uh, gravity and Jupiter is cleaning up the solar system and protecting us. Just back in the 90s, there was another huge asteroid that hit Jupiter, and they say it likely could have been on a collision course for Earth. But it, Jupiter took the hit for us, and the, the dust cloud that they saw on Jupiter was the size of the entire atmosphere of Earth, or the, the entire size of Earth. So if that had hit us, it would have been very difficult for a long time. Um, so moving on, the, I'll skip back. Oh, the origins of life. How did we get from sand to biological organisms. Until you have biological organisms, you can't talk about evolution. Irreducible complexity. Uh, Michael Behe wrote a book about this. Um, if you look at cells, they're like tiny machines, tiny factories inside the cell that are moving around. There's really cool videos on YouTube about irreducible complexity. Um, they say that the most efficient engine on Earth is the, the engine that pushes a bacteria around. It, it has, it's, it's all made with cool little things. I should have had the video. Um, and you can't simplify that. You can simplify an engine so far until you get to the point where it's not an engine anymore. It won't work. You can make a really stripped down two-horse engine or um, two-stroke engine, but at a certain point, you need some complexity there. And so that becomes an obstacle to evolution. How do you get really, really simple? as we realize how complex, quote-unquote, simple organisms are. And then biodiversity, DNA from random mutation, and, that, and finally we get to evolution. So there's all these things before evolution um, that we can talk about to show, um, it doesn't necessarily, none of these things are necessarily like, boom, God did it. It just shows more and more, there's so much more design here than we perhaps had thought before. Um, one big question that I had was, can I be a feminist and a Christian? Um, this is going to be kind of random, like just these questions. Um, and uh, I really struggled with that for a long time because I have strong views about um, what the Bible says about gender. Um, but well, what, would, what would you say to this? I'll just ask that rhetorically. Leave it hanging there for half a second. All right, now I'll answer it. Um, 
Sometimes when you get really tired, your internal notes become your external words. Um, so what I did is I did a Bible study, and I said, hey, look, here's the four positions in the church. You have patriarchalists, you have complementarians, you have egalitarians, you have feminists. And we went through kind of the three blocks of, you know, here's how Christians see man and woman just before God, creating God's image. Here's how the different, different categories would see the home and how to structure it. And here's how the four categories would see the church and how to live out Christian community. And then I said, look, you can, the answer I gave is yes, you can be a Christian feminist. Um, if that's what's holding you back, don't let it hold you back. There are feminists in the church. I know because I've argued with them. Um, and, uh, you know, the, Jesus said, um, woe to anyone that puts a stumbling block in front of somebody um, that causes one of these little ones to stumble. And I would rather have, if, if this is holding somebody back from becoming a Christian, I'd rather them become a feminist Christian than say I can't become a Christian because I have to agree with Josiah and his, his weird beliefs on that issue. Um, moving on to number six. Can I be a Christian evolutionist? What would you say to this? So again, my answer is yes. And I laid out, here's the four main positions in the church. There are six-day creationists, there are old earth creationists, there are creationists, creationary evolutionists, and evolutionary creationists. And I had, and there's a difference, don't laugh. <laughs> People take it very seriously. Um, and, and so I had a list of, you know, here's the issues. And then there's liberals, you know, and I did kind of put that off to the side and say, and then there's people that don't consider the Bible to be authoritative at all. You know, and I, none of these fit in that category. Uh, and, and my point was, look, there are Christians who are all over the map on this. Don't feel as though before you can enter into the kingdom of God, you need to agree with us on this point. I'm sure even in this room, if we open up this question to debate, there'd be you know, all sorts of perspectives. Um, yeah, and even Ken Ham agrees with me, kind of. <laughs> Taking a little bit out of context. But he said, we're not saying that if you believe in evolution that you can't be a Christian. Not at all. Because the Bible says that by grace you are saved. You don't save yourself. It's by confessing the Lord Jesus that he, and that he was rose from the dead that you are saved. Some grammar issues there, but that's probably my fault in the transcribing of it. Okay, probably the biggest question that gets asked of Christians is, how can a good God allow suffering? And this is really... You know, it's the one that hits us. When something really bad happens to us or to our kids, what in the world? Like, how could a good God be up there and yet this happened in my life or in the life of somebody else? And this is something that um, we need to be careful to talk about the intellectual question of evil and the emotional question. Because when somebody's, you know, child is, you know, going through something terrible, you don't go to them with a head issue and be like, here's the intellectual problem to or solution to your problem. Obviously, they're not dealing with the, the intellectual problem. They're dealing with the emotional problem. And what they need is a friend. And what they need is for somebody to come alongside and say, look, I don't know why this is happening to you. I don't, but God is with you, and I'm with you. And let's, let's walk through this together. Um, but the emotional answer to the question is going to be very unsatisfactory to somebody that's intellectually wrestling with it. Because it is... A, probably the biggest intellectual question that we'll ever wrestle with uh, in regard to God um, or whichever religion. It, it is the big one that humanity is really wrestling with. Um, 
And I think the best answer to the question is, number one, free will is necessary for love and worship. God could have created robots. Um, he could have created more insects that just kind of do their thing, you know, and eat bugs or eat things and, and make anthills and, and do their thing. He could have made trees that just do their thing. He could have made animals that just do their thing, following instincts. Uh, they're not really good. They're not really bad. They just do what they're going to do. Um, but instead, he chose to create human beings who have the potential and the capacity for love and for self-sacrifice and for being the dads that we talked about um, and for pouring their lives out for others, but also for the potential to do evil. The ability to choose evil is a necessary condition of free will. God couldn't very well create free will beings and then not let them do what they wanted. He created free will, and along with that comes the negative consequence of being able to choose evil. Therefore, God did not create evil directly, but he allows it to exist so that free will can exist. So evil is kind of like a shadow. God creates free will. Free will is good. But along with free will comes evil. I'm sure you're all impressed with my artistic abilities there. Um, Alright, so then... So evil does not exist independently. It's not as though God created evil, created good and created evil. Uh, he created free will, which brings with it the potential for good and evil. It's the privation of good. It's a reality created by free will creatures and allowed by God for his purposes. So obviously the next question is, well, was it worth it? Was all the bad and all the pain and all the suffering in the world worth it for God to create these free will creatures? And certainly from our perspective, in certain situations, it doesn't seem like it. Uh, but we have to believe that God, from his perspective, knows what he was doing because he, he chose to create free will. Uh, does evil disprove God? Actually, evil, the existence of evil, becomes one of the best arguments for the existence of God. When, when somebody points at something and says, that is just so evil, it's so terrible that this happened, that, that the Holocaust happened, that, that natural disasters happened, that all these things happened. How can God exist if the, all this evil exists in the world? Well, when, when you're saying the word evil, um, that's actually an evidence for God. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. If God does not exist, it's not legitimate for you to say that evil exists when you mean it in the objective sense. Objective means whether anybody else agrees with it, it's still wrong. Even if Hitler had won and brainwashed the whole earth and everybody agreed that the Holocaust was okay, it would still be wrong. It would still be wrong. That's what objective means. Uh, moral values and duties. Values is certain things are good. Charity is good. You know, philanthropy or um, love is good. Um, and values like, uh, like hatred are bad. And duties, there's certain things that we should do, there's certain things that we shouldn't do. There's certain things that a father should do, there's certain things that a father should not do. But if God does not exist, there's no way of, of saying that objectively these things actually exist. Of course, there's people that try and, and create an objective uh, ground for morality, but they all fail for one reason or another. If objective moral values and duties do not exist, then evil doesn't exist. All you can say is, I don't prefer this, I don't prefer that. But that's not what, what our heart screams when we see real injustice, we say that is wrong. And what you're giving up, if you say God doesn't exist, what you're giving up is the right to say 
That is wrong. That is evil. Uh, but evil does exist. Evil does exist. And it's really interesting as I read, uh, I'm starting to read more of the, the literature written by professional philosophers and realizing relativism is going away, at least in, in high academic uh, philosophers, because nobody can really live with real relativism. Really saying that, you know, and I could fill in the blank here with this, you know, I don't want to use a really graphic example, but something that is really evil. Who could really say that true evil is not evil? It's just a personal preference. So evil does exist, therefore God exists, because otherwise there's no way to say that, God, that evil exists without an objective uh, grounding for moral values and duties. All right, does anybody remember this uh, McLean's Magazine article cover for, from two years ago? Does Jesus even exist? Did Jesus even really even exist? The science is in. New memory research is casting doubt on the few things we thought we knew about Jesus. Now a growing number of experts think he didn't exist at all. Wow. And this is our premier you know, news source in Canada. McLean's Art Magazine. They're usually very reputable um, in what they publish. Um, so another class I taught, I actually researched a lot about the historical Jesus. Um, and here I want to dig deep a little bit to talk about um, how we need to approach history. And as Christians, we're starting to understand that there are people out there that are studying our religion that aren't us. Um, we could call them liberals or just you know, secular academics. There's all sorts of people out there that are studying our religion that aren't us. And... Um, of course, we need to be careful with that. We need to um, know how to deal with that. But it's interesting because when secular people study Christianity, they're not influenced by bias. And sometimes Christians might study Christianity, but they're studying it from an academic perspective. And there isn't a bias. And they can tell you this is what the truth actually is about what happened. Of course, um, of course, there is a bias in being skeptical, in being academic. And let me explain a little bit. This is why I have this comic here. Um, I'll tell you a little story that's going to make a lot of... Um, that's going to explain a little bit the difference in looking at Jesus from an academic perspective versus the perspective of faith. Uh, my grandfather uh, lived in this area, um, I don't know... 30 years ago. He was a watchmaker at Haledi's Jewelers. Um, I don't know if anybody knew Hank Meyer, worked at Haledi's Jewelers for a while. It was a while back. Um, but he also went through World War II. And he has all these stories that he passed on to my dad. He died before uh, we were born. But that he passed on to my dad about the things that he did during World War II. And uh, one day in grade school, I wrote a paper for my teacher about all the things that my grandfather did. And my dear teacher sent back the paper um, and we had a conversation about it in which she said, you know, sometimes in the retelling, family stories get a little bit bigger than they actually are. And she wasn't really sure that all these things had actually happened and why she felt the need to tell a little child that, I don't know. But it really shook me because my only link to my grandfather was the stories I had received from my father about his father. And they were really important to me. Um, and as I was preparing a class uh, last year on the historical Jesus and trying to explain the difference between looking academically at Jesus and looking through the eyes, you know, through the New Testament at Jesus, 
Uh, my dad texted me and he said, I'm in Sulaco right now and I'm standing in front of my father's grave. And uh, he just wanted to, to talk a little bit about that. And that was news, I mean, I knew that he was buried there, I just hadn't thought about going to his graveside. Um, and it clicked for me for a second, or it clicked for me that um, if I was to study my grandfather academically, there would be very little that I could actually prove about him to a skeptic like my teacher in ninth grade. What could I actually prove? I know he existed. I mean, everybody agrees in this room that I have a grandfather of one form or another. That's a scientific fact. Um, but what could I actually prove? Well, two data points that I know absolutely for sure about my grandfather is that he was born and that he died on such and such a date, and they're written on a tombstone over in Sulaco. That's about the extent of what I know academically, scientifically about him. But that doesn't, the fact that I can't prove these stories doesn't mean that they're true or false. Do you get that? It just means I can't, dis, I can't prove them academically. Um, the other thing I want to say is that when I say we can prove this, it's a positive, no, I'm not going to say it. Okay, so there's, there's certain data points that we know absolutely for sure, but that doesn't disprove the other things. So for Jesus, there are at least two data points that are absolutely certain, for, actually three, that are absolutely certain for the historical Jesus. Secular people have been studying Jesus for at least 150 years. There have actually been three quests for the historical Jesus. Uh, and I could go through all that. It would be lots of fun, but we don't have time. Uh, and I wasn't planning to either. But academics disagree about who the historical Jesus was. But the theory that Jesus never even existed is a relic of the past. There is not a serious academic that would raise that, that would write a paper, that would get published in a scientific or historical journal. That has been abandoned in the 1930s. So that's why um, the, the major response to this McLean's article is they're just almost 100 years out of date in their scholarship. And on the public, you know, um, the pop literature level, this sort of thing gets recycled and gets pushed out there. But on the academic level, nobody is taking this seriously. Uh, what is absolutely certain is that Jesus existed, he lived, he was a teacher, he had original thoughts uh, that didn't exist before him, that definitely started during his ministry. What is very, very, uh, almost undisputed is that he was baptized by John the Baptist in the river. Um, because why would later Christians invent that? It's embarrassing, it's strange, we, I don't really even know what to do with it. Um, it's one of those things that most people would agree definitely Jesus was baptized and that Jesus definitely died on a Roman cross. That is very, very well attested in secular and in Christian sources that uh, Jesus was born, he was a Jew, he was a teacher, he was a messianic figure, he was baptized by John the Baptist and he was crucified. And so... Um, don't believe people that would say, did Jesus really exist? Of course he existed. Of course he existed. All academics, all historians agree that Jesus existed. The question, of course, is who was he? What did he say? What was the real story about Jesus? And that's where a lot of controversy is, of course. Uh, but that leads us to the next question. Did the first Christians worship Jesus as God? Because, of course, the first Christians are the ones that wrote the New Testament. Uh, did the first Christians worship him as God, or, as the story often goes, did the first Christians think that he was just a good teacher, a good moral example? And the more they got to telling about the stories, the, the bigger he got, until finally, about the time of 
that uh, the Gospel of John was written, oh, now he's the Son of God, and by the time we get to the Council of Nicaea, maybe we'll talk about the Trinity. So liberals will talk about kind of this evolving idea about God. What is often skipped over is the very, very important role of Paul in telling us about who Jesus was. Because Paul is actually the first writer in the New Testament. Uh, James might have been earlier. We're not really sure what to do with James. Um, but Paul wrote very, very early in the New Testament. Jesus, as you know, died in AD 33. He didn't die in zero. Sometimes there's some confusion. AD doesn't mean after death. It means in the year of our Lord. Um, so Jesus died in AD 30. And Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 16, 22 in AD 53 to 57. So I want to read you some of the sources. We're going to do a little bit of source criticism here. Look at some of the sources that came before Paul. 1 Corinthians 6, 16, 22. If I can find it. Right at the end. No, is that right? 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Yeah, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha. That phrase, Maranatha is a transliteration of the Aramaic for come, Lord, or else our Lord has come. So when you say Maranatha, what you're saying is come, Lord. And in the context, who he's talking about is Jesus. Now, you need to know from the, from the context that when the Jews said Lord, Kyrios, they were talking about God. They were saying, God come, or our God has come, in, re in reference to Jesus. So this is significant because this is something that had already been passed around as a saying, as something that the Christian community, the Jesus community, was saying to one another is Maranatha, Maranatha. And it's very, very early because the very earliest Jesus followers would have spoken Aramaic and not Greek. This is before they had gotten out of Palestine, the very central uh, part where it had originated. Um, they were saying, come, Lord, in reference to Jesus. Uh, the second example, the second source that we can look at is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel that I preached to you, which also you received in which you stand, by which you were saved, if you hold fast what I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. So, okay, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So here he's saying, what I'm going to say is something that came before me, Something that other people gave me that I'm passing on to you. So this is a source that predates A.D. 53, 20 years after the death of Jesus. I deliver to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. So already 20 years after the death of Christ, Paul is saying, I received this message from other people about how Jesus died for our sins according to scriptures, and was raised again for our salvation. Um, as well, Philippians 2, 5-11. This is the, the passage that a lot of you guys have memorized. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, um, and being found in the likeness of a servant, um, became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So very clearly talking about how Jesus existed in the form of God, 
and became incarnate and died for our sins. And this is written just 16 to 19 years after the death of Christ. And Galatians, the whole book of Galatians, which sparked the Protestant Reformation, which very, very clearly talks about salvation by grace through faith, is written just 16 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. In Galatians 2, 1 to 10, Paul talks about how he had received, um, where he, he went to Jerusalem and he talked with uh, Peter and the other apostles, and he confirmed that the gospel he was preaching was the same one that they were preaching. And this meeting likely happened around AD 40, just seven years after the death of Jesus. And so sure, people can theorize about, well, maybe there were, you know, people that thought Jesus was God, there were people that didn't think Jesus was God. Of course, there were people that had different opinions about God. But very certainly, there were early Christians, as early as seven years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, that believed Jesus was God. So this rules out certain things, like the idea of a myth. A myth takes a long time. It, you, myths, in the, in the classical sense of a myth, doesn't develop in seven years. Um, the this, this story getting bigger and better over time and, and the details getting fuzzy in the retelling doesn't happen in 7 to 20 years. This is still in living memory of the actual events. Um, the biggest question that I get asked is, don't all religions lead to God? And this is the one that's kind of, in, in our world, that's increasingly violent and increasingly shaken by religious violence, by Islam. Um, this is kind of the one that's pushed on us, is to say, well, we need to just be accepting, and we need to see that all religions lead to the same place. We're all part of one big family, and if we could all just see that, then there'd be no more violence. Um, and of course, us seeing that isn't going to change, you know, the violent people necessarily, uh, and what they believe. Um, but the thing that I come back to over and over is to say, Martin Luther said, there are many religions of works and one religion of grace. And that all the religions of the world basically come down to do good things and good things will happen to you. Impress God or gods or karma or whatever, and then you will have good results and, and good rewards. And Christianity is the only religion that starts off with, you can't do it. You can't do it. God wrote this much of the Bible, approximately, to convince you that you could not do it to show you what God's holiness was like, and to show you that you can't do it. People have tried really hard. Nobody can be righteous in God's sight. And then to say, but I've got a, a solution to the problem, that Jesus is coming to die for your sins, according to scriptures, that we can be saved by his death, according to scriptures. Um, and I said, uh, you know, I shared this at a Bible study, and one, one student very aptly asked the question, well, okay, most religions have works and then salvation. You have salvation and then works. It's the same deal, right? You got, you got the same things. You're just mix and matching a little bit. And I said, just think about a marriage. Think about love for a second. Does it make a difference if a guy says, all right, you stay in my house, you live with me for 30 years or so, and every day I'll evaluate how well you're doing, and maybe at the end of it, if all goes well after about 20, 30 years, we've had some kids, had, you know, I'll say to you, well, you've earned it, and I'll marry you. Or, at the beginning, to say, I've got no idea what the future will hold. I have no idea what you're going to do for me. I don't know what I'm going to be able to do for you. But I'm going to put this ring on your finger, and we're going to make a vow, and I'm, I'm giving you my life. 
Which one is true love? Because that's what Jesus does for us. He doesn't sit back and say, well, show me what you can do, and then we'll talk about it after, you know, 20, 30 years. He starts with, I give you myself. I lay down myself for you. I've done all that I can for you. I've paid all your sins. You start at ground zero with no baggage, no history. Just me and you, and we're going to work this out the rest of the way. And there is grace for every single stumble. There's grace for every single mistake along the way. And that's the difference between the one religion of grace and the many religions of works. Um, so I think I'm going to pray now, and then I'll turn it over to uh, the prayer team. Thank you, Jesus, that uh, you are good to us and that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you, Jesus, that um, you've got us out in Quebec um, and you've got us uh, on the University of Sherbrooke and, and we're able to share the gospel there. We're able to share the, the gospel in other areas as well in Quebec and online. And I just thank you, Lord, that um, you speak and that your word is true. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the prayer team is going to come forward. If you'd like prayer, uh, come on forward to the prayer team, and I guess we'll be dismissed. Thank you all.